don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, economic, demographic, and biological politics of Detroit with Nick Cavalier. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Nick Cavalli, who is a PhD student at the uh, University of Michigan and uh, we are recording this conversation in Detroit. Uh, hello Nick. Hello. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. I'm particularly enthusiastic about this conversation because uh, there is one rule about Archipelago which is that I go to meet people uh, person to person we don't we don't do any uh, conversation uh, through the phone or anything like that so here here I am in Detroit to talk about Detroit so I think that's that's going to be very interesting uh, to do so and uh, so I arrived I arrived in Detroit yesterday so I'm, I'm very very uh, uh, in a discovery mode here and uh, I think uh, through this conversation, we're going to try not to romanticize Detroit like it's been uh, it's been done many times, uh, and uh, and uh, and we we're going to try not to um, attribute uh, simplest reasons for the state that Detroit is in right now. Uh, however, I I cannot uh, yesterday I could not help but noticed the, the state that the city is in uh, it's, uh, you don't need to you don't need to look for runes to, to, to find them they're absolutely everywhere so it was it was quite a quite a um, uh, quite a discovery again and um, and I think throughout this conversation as well we're gonna try to um, um, also uh, uh, not not do what's usually done, which is to insist on people who left Detroit and maybe to insist on on the people who who, who stayed in Detroit. Uh, um, and so so we we're gonna divide this conversation into two parts, which uh, totally makes sense together. But uh, the, the the first part will be um, about explaining uh, ex explaining uh, the, the current politics of Detroit uh, as uh, as uh, I think. Uh, the listeners have a have a different degrees of knowledge about it, and I certainly do not much uh, do not know much about it. So I'm I'm relying on you to explain that to all of us. Uh, maybe to begin with, we should we should talk about the the, the governance of the city sure. itself uh, uh, for for the last uh, for the last year. I believe there's a there. The governance has been uh, has shifted from a traditional mode of city governance to a more uh, finance uh, piloting. I would call it this way. But uh, could you could you explain that about us? Yeah. So, I, uh, could you explain that to us, please? I think piloting is a is probably that is a really good term for it. So Detroit presently does have an elected mayor and city council. Um, they were elected most recently in November of last year. Um, for the first time in more than 100 years, actually by a district model where people in different parts of the city elected city council members um, before it had been by an at-large vote where all, you know, the entire city council was selected at-large. But um, 
that vote was taken to be more or less, um, well, it was taken very seriously by the people who were involved, and people obviously do care about voting for their elected representatives. Those representatives don't have, they have actually no power um, because Detroit, all decisions that pertain to governance in the city of Detroit are controlled by the Office of the Emergency Financial Manager. um, And the financial manager currently is Kevin Orr, and he was appointed a little over a year ago um, by um, Rick Snyder, who is the governor, the Republican governor of the state of Michigan. Um, And so Kevin Orr reports directly to the governor's office. Um, And he has veto power over any decision that the city council or the mayor's office might make. Um, so in that respect, all, and, you know, even in the title, as you, as you said, um, financial manager, everything is piloted in terms of finance. Um, and so it was Kevin Orr, actually, who led the city into a bankruptcy filing, actually about a year ago. Um, and his, his job, and I, you know, I haven't spoken to him personally about this, but I have seen him speak n- numerous times. He says, you know, my job is to make sure that the finances add up. Um, so any decision is driven by finances, including privatization of city services, um, elimination of city services, and anything like that. So he, and while he has given you know city work, well, city administrators a raise, he hasn't really given city. Only recently did city workers who've been working without contracts for years did their unions come to agreements with the finance financial manager's office that does give them raises and retroactive pay. Um, any decision, I would say, that has been made in Detroit and probably will be, I mean, the, while Kevin Orr's term, and he refers to it as a term, and he sometimes does refer to himself as an elected official, um, which is odd considering that no one voted for him ever. But he takes that in terms of that the governor's office, which is elected, appointed him. Um, He's trying to lay the, I mean, his quite explicit goal is to lay the groundwork for a sort of financial technocracy here in Detroit, where finances drive decision making Mm -hmm. um, and data drives decision making and that has been his goal. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm sure many banks are looking very closely at what at what's happening in Detroit right now to see if there's not a new a new mode of uh, capitalist governance that can emerge from it isn't it? I mean and yeah certainly banks um, and all sorts of you know financial apparatuses and they're kind of repeating stations, their political repeating stations are looking at Detroit. Um, and for them, I mean, yesterday I was, I happened to be listening to a you know public radio program where they were talking about how hedge funds are actually quite interested in buying up debt in Detroit for penny, you know, pennies on the dollar with the, in, in thinking that through the bankruptcy filing, they might make even just a couple more pennies on the dollar. So, you know, it's kind of the kind of final mode of Maybe not final, definitely not final, um, but just another layer of financial extraction on top of debt that has accrued over you know over decades, um, and thinking about how money can be kind of wrung out of things like par- public parking or public parks, um, or soon to be not public parks mm-hmm. and soon to not be public parking and soon to not be a public water distribution system. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's quite a lot of interest, not only, I mean, certainly there's interest, finan- you know, from kind of the financial sector and what the kind of model that Detroit might provide um, or a blueprint for laying down in other cities that are burdened 
you know, through underfunding from other state apparatuses, um, underfunding in pension systems, underfunding in, you know, for city services, how might bankruptcy provide an out to eliminate pensions, to eliminate, you know, all kinds of services that many, I mean, that we take as kind of the, the, the underpinnings of what a municipal governance might look like to just strip it down and get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll go back to the question of water in the second part of the conversation because I think you, you, that's what uh, your work, I mean, that's partially what your work is uh, investigating. Uh, and, and the problem of water are, are absolutely fundamental in, their, in the current uh, situation in Detroit. Um, just to maybe talk, uh, continue to unfold this situation uh, to people who might not be completely familiarized uh, with Detroit. Uh, uh, so you you just talked about public parks that are that are being privatized, for mm-hmm. example, that are being sold quite literally. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's there's also um, discussions, and maybe you'll tell us whether uh, how how serious those discussions are to maybe, for example, sell the art of their of their Detroit uh, uh, art museum, uh, which actually triggers interesting question about whether. Art as an institution is a luxury for a city or a necessity, uh, and uh, and uh, all these other uh, public services, some of which you you've been talking about. Uh, I've my my first encounter with the absolute absence of a certain sector of public service yesterday was certainly with their with their the, the way the, the roads are being maintained or, or rather more precisely are not being maintained. I thought I thought I, I thought I broke my rental car yesterday in, in, in a quasi unpracticable street for normal cars. Uh, um, but so we, we really we really uh, observe uh, an entire realms of public service that are absolutely uh, cancelled or, or sold to their to uh, to private uh, to private uh, actors, uh, so is it, for example, t- let's go back to the art. Is that is that something that might actually happen? They're they're selling selling the art of the museum. Um, I would say that it's probably less less going to happen. Yeah. Um, so yesterday, so. The way that the financial manager and the governor's office had arranged this to happen is um, through the bankruptcy proceeding, they had asked for um, pensions, which were taken to be a sort of a benefit that couldn't be dissolved per the state of Michigan constitution, which has a, a clause in it that says something along the lines of that pensions shall, shall not be dissolved or abridged something like that so um they had asked they had they took that actually to court and uh, the federal bankruptcy judge um who's overseeing the case here in detroit had said well you know federal bankruptcy law trumps this state of michigan statute um so that was kind of how they had taken public em- public employee pensions and said well these are on the table as as these public employees and retirees become creditors um and they worked at this thing that they called a quote-unquote grand bargain um, between where they placed the pension systems and the Detroit Institute of Arts as sort of different balancing acts. So they took, they, they went to the employee, the retiree pension systems, and they said, 
if you vote for a certain amount of cuts, um, the we will you know make up the balance of the money by getting the state of Michigan and a whole bunch of private philanthropic organizations to buy the art from the from the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, and the only reason this was even on the table is because much of the art, well, not even much of the art, only a fraction of the collection in the Detroit Institute of Arts was owned, was purchased through City of Detroit money um, from the city, which is quite an, a unique, actually, arrangement um, in that, you know, most of it were, you know, the city, of, it was purchased at, you know, the beginning of the 20th century when Detroit was becoming, you know, sort of brought together through automotive capital. Um, but I'm rambling here. So point being, the retiree pension holders were given an opportunity to vote on whether they wanted to approve cuts to their pensions that would preserve the Detroit, that would allow the Detroit Institute of Arts to become a nonprofit entity and for all of this art to be held in a nonprofit trust as opposed to the public trust that it had been held in. And it was, you know, the results of this election were released yesterday and the retiree, you know, something like 33,000 people were eligible to vote and fewer than 15,000 people actually voted, um, which is, quite, I think, something was something like 48% of people eligible to vote voted. And this, it passed by, you know, 75% of, eligible, of people who voted, voted to approve these cuts to their pensions. And the financial manager in the governor's office released statements saying, you know, oh, we applaud these retirees. You know, we realize they're making sacrifices. And, you know, I frankly find that a little laughable because they gave them, they said, if you don't vote to approve this, we'll try to take away everything. You know, if you don't vote to approve a 4% cut in your pension and then any cost of living increase, we will go, try to go for a 25% reduction of your pension. We will try to take away your health insurance. Um, and which doesn't really seem to be a choice. It seems to be, would you like me to shoot you in your heart or in your head? Um, which way would you like to die? And um, and by the way, you will be responsible of your own death because we give you the choice. Right. And yeah, it, it became this sort of, you know, well, you have a responsibility and a duty to, you know, share in the burden, even though, you know, many, especially police and fire retirees are not eligible for Social Security because of their pension. Um, so you have people, you know, and these pension, I mean, the way these benefit plans are set up was supposed to be, you know, something that was held in trust and in perpetuity. Um, so anyway, because of this kind of, this very financialized arrangement, the Art Institute should, is not supposed to be sold. Now, there are bond insurers who are quite intent on challenging this sort of very, Finan I mean, this financialized arrangement that has been set up to because um, it has something like $800 million has been either given from the state of Michigan or through philanthropic organizations um, to the Art Institute. And the bond insurers who stand to t lose billions of dollars um, argue that this is an undervaluing of the Art Institute. So whether or not it is, you know, this arrangement stands up is up to the um, Stephen Rhodes, who's the bankruptcy judge um, overseeing the case. Okay, well, so I think this is a, a very good introduction in terms of the governance of the city to understand a little bit what's behind uh, uh, the more uh, apparent aspect of the city itself uh, that we should address uh, now. Um, 
So for people who don't know Detroit, and you'll describe that way better than I will, but from, from my own uh, experience driving in the city, um, uh, you have to imagine entire neighborhoods where maybe one or two houses will be left per block. The, all the rest being either ruins or having been destroyed, uh, I mean, de demolished uh, uh, administratively after after the, they'd been uh, uh, left. Uh, um, so Detroit lost about 25% of its population in the last 10 years, I think. That's yes. The, that's the figure I saw. And, um, and uh, so you, uh, the, people, the people that who left, for many of them, Or, or rather, the people who stayed, for many of them, uh, were was corres corresponded to uh, the strict impossibility to live, uh, uh, mostly linked to to, to poverty. Uh, so not only not only um, there's been uh, 25% of the city living, but those people living, uh, I suppose, well, most of them were part of the middle class. So we. We're, we're back with the city with uh, uh, its biggest aspect of its population being of uh, of uh, working working class and uh, and uh, and uh, unemployed unemployed uh, people. I think there's about 16 of unemployment, which is more than twice the average in the United States. Um, so. That's one part of the population, and then uh, there is another part of the and, and this population. Uh, we should we should not forget to say that uh, um, as as often in the in the United States, uh, the, the the poor population is uh, corresponds uh, quite often with their, with an African American population. Uh, so it is very much a, a racialized problem as well, and and. and There, the corollary of that is that there is a, there is another population that uh, has been uh, described quite often recently, which are uh, what we could call the, the Detroit enthusiastic, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and uh, you send me this uh, very useful article by uh, Thomas Sugur. Uh, called No Town, and the subtitles being Good News: A Few Hipsters Are Rediscovering Detroit. Bad news, everything else. Uh, uh, he, he, I from from the way he wrote his article, it could have been not good news, but kind of good news or something. <laughs> like that because he's very he's very uh, uh, ambiguous uh, about his feelings about uh, this white population that uh, reinvestigate reinvestigate Detroit and uh, and he's also he's also uh, quite. Uh, uh, Ironic or, or doubtful of this rhetoric that seems to uh, think of Detroit as a as a tabula rasa and and therefore a, a sort of a, a white rhetoric of denying the very existence of the population that's still in Detroit uh, and mostly the African American one uh, and and also a sort of uh, the the rhetoric that this this uh, this white population uh, newcomer population. Uh, Is, is having a sort of messianic rhetoric of saving the city, um, uh, but so so this uh, that that being said, I mean there's a, there's a, 
and and as this article is pointing out, there is still there a sort of optimism and the sort of productivity of this population that's that's that should not be denied, and uh, and the fact that uh, the real estate in Detroit being so incredibly low, uh, uh, um, sometimes property are, I think are sold for like a symbolical dollars, uh, a symbolical dollar, uh, and. Um, and there is a production that's made of that, or whether uh, of of what what the Sugar called the, the creative class. Um, so before before we jump we jumped into your your own specific works that you're doing uh, in your doctoral research. Could you maybe tell us about those two populations that um, that exist in uh, that still live in Detroit? One one per, by choice, and the other by necessity. Sure. I mean, I actually I'm, I need to talk about it because it actually undergirds much of the kind of understanding, I think, of, of Detroit. Because um, even, you know, I think there is this imaginary of Detroit as, uh, you know, it's just full of these empty neighborhoods with like one person on six blocks. And, you know, you know, there is, I mean, this gets played up a lot in the media. And then, oh, and then you have this sort of gentrifying core. And that's about it. Um and I th- mean, this is perhaps best analyzed. There's a recent New York Times article about Detroit that um, they went to a neighborhood which is called Corktown, which is just west of kind of the downtown business district. Um, and it has a, a famous, well, maybe infamous barbecue joint called Slows, which was started by this man named Phil Cooley and his brother. Um, and they started the in the early 2000s. Um, but every every couple of years, the New York Times seems to rediscover Slow's Barbecue, which has been featured in a lot of you know food and wine and um, other kind of food blogosphere things. Um, and Phil and the other guy and the Cooley brothers are both white, um, but there are other sort of uh, long-standing businesses and new businesses in the area which are owned by people of color. And the New York Times held up, you know, slows as just kind of, oh, look, you've saved a neighborhood. And that's not exactly true. Um, but in Detroit, I mean, you have you do have these very empty sections. And then you have sections that are dense, still quite densely populated, um, either with, you know, you know, with all kinds of human beings, I guess. Um, so you have this really kind of patchwork urban fabric, which can which kind of unsettling sometimes to see that you have, I mean, in these dense neighborhoods are held together or, you know, kept in place by historic district associations and block clubs. And, you know, they run the gamut of from very, you know, quite, you know, sometimes quite wealthy people who, you know, live in um, neighborhoods like, I mean, some of them are called Palmer Woods and Boston Edison and Indian Village. Those are probably the best known ones. But then also, you know, more middle class neighborhoods do remain, um, but they tend to, I mean, they exist in pockets. Um, but then, I mean, as you, you point out, you know, poverty is a huge problem because um, Detroit has a, you know, in many ways, I think the way that it's discussed. So you have these people who choose, you know, for one re- for whatever reason, choose to live in Detroit. And there are a lot of reasons. And I, I probably don't, I don't, there is not enough time to discuss them. And then, you know, you have a sort of a very impoverished, part of the population that has been left, ab- I mean, I would say abandoned by a sort of a, 
an educational system that set them up to do one thing, which was work in factories or, you know, maybe service work or something like that. And those jobs just frankly don't exist anymore. You know, they haven't existed for a while. Um, and they've just kind of been left um, by conventional modes of governance. And they're taken as this sort of this sort of blank slate, oh, Detroit has all of these poor people, and Sagru mentions this, that like, you know, oh, you know, there are all of these great visions of the future for Detroit, that, oh, you know, if we would just invest enough money, we would have these this beautiful city, and he's like, and there's one problem with that, poor people, like, they happen, you know, um, and problem, he said, he uses it tongue-in-cheek, he's not saying, oh, these poor people are a problem, but, um, I think that, I mean, as he points out, it's something that's frequently forgotten about. And I, I wouldn't say that it's that people can't leave. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put anybody in a position of saying that they can't leave Detroit. They don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, whether, you know, people happen to like their homes or they happen to, you know... So I wouldn't say it's because of a lack of social mobility in any sort of sense, because there are places they could move to. They just choose... I mean, they choose not to or they don't want to or they feel like they're stuck there. Mm-hmm. Um, at least the, the options are reduced compared to the, the they are certainly they are certainly reduced and so part of that is a, you know it's a financial problem um, and it's not something I have a great amount of expertise to talk to speak to besides to just kind of gesture in broad strokes but I, as you point out you know this is set up in a kind of binary with the Detroit enthusiastic um, which if one of if you know Detroit's poorer population is portrayed as you know is black. Um, the Detroit enthusiastic is is portrayed as white, um, which is probably true, but certainly you know there's more more sort of a gradient on both sides. Um, and something, I mean, in these you know hipsters, and I, I use that as kind of that's a blanket term. It's not. I'm not trying to say it's a negative thing, but um, they're nothing new. I don't think they're not actually new at all in Detroit, or I'm sure anywhere. But the kind of I guess I I do some archival work as well, and you know, you, even going back as far as you know, like the Detroit's population peaked in 1955, just about two million people. But going back to there has been this sort of oh, there are these sort of messianic saviors stretching back to at least the 70s in sort of newspaper things and archival stuff, um, where you know you have young 20-somethings sort of artists and musicians and some professionals who, you know, live in neighborhoods near the downtown core and they live in lofts and they kind of, you know, make their own way in a city that, you know, people talk about as being, you know, depopulated, which I think is quite interesting how even in the 70s when Detroit still had, you know, 1.2 million people in it or something, you know, it was depopulated at that point and now it has just about seven, probably less than 700,000 people. Well, it's it's always interesting to see that the city seems to be defined from outside uh, through its no longer present population rather than its actually present right. population. Yes. Um, so you know these kind of messianic saviors or urban pioneers, as they're sometimes you know they're talked about, are nothing new. What I do think is new, um, quite recently new, is the kind of well-financed um, sort of messianic saviors and who those people are. So, you know, Detroit had an up, you know, in 1967, which is taken as a sort of uh, perhaps teeter-totter year often in 
at least locally, which is when there was uh, what is alternate mean it's an uprising or a rebellion or a riot happened um, for you know, several days and weeks when the National Guard was called into Detroit after the city of Detroit police raided an after-hours bar. Um, and the police were predominantly white, and the bar was almost entirely black, um, and they arrest, there were a large number of arrests, and this started a, what is regarded as a riot or a rebellion, depending on who you ask. Um, you probably just call it an uprising, and that might be, make it better. But people, so after this kind of, even though, so Thomas DeGruy wrote a book called Origins of the Urban Crisis, in which he kind of undermines that narrative that, oh, 1967, that is when Detroit started to decline. He shows that, you know, the kind of underpinnings and population had begun to decline much sooner with, you know, sort of deindustrialization, et cetera. But, you know, starting at that point, a large number of automotive capitalists, including Henry Ford's sort of his children um, started this thing with the help of Coleman Young, who was at that time, I think, a, a legislator, and he became, later became the mayor, the first black mayor of the city. Um, this thing called New Detroit, um, which was aimed at promoting business development and people moving to the city. And New Detroit, meanwhile, it lasted for a while. It built this building called the Renaissance Center, which was supposed to be Detroit's comeback. It was this big, it remains a sort of big office fortress. Um, and it was going to show how Detroit could, you know, fight back against the kind of the negative aspects of population. Um, this sort of new Detroit automotive capitalist savior has been recently replaced with um, a more technology-focused sector, um, specifically a man named Dan Gilbert, who um, runs the Quicken Loans family of companies, relocated his businesses to Detroit Central Business District and has spent, and has bought something, I think, like 50, 50 buildings in the sort of downtown area um, and has become one of the biggest landlords downtown and has, uh, you know, talks about how, you know, we need to, we need to make Detroit come, you know, we're going to make it great. Um, and it's really more of make it great for whom? Mm-hmm. Um, for him, it's, you know, he employs a private security force that monitor and a you know a huge camera array that monitors all of you know his sort of down, his property holdings, um, and he you know is able to through his sort of you know he funds millions of dollars in sort of these kind of security things and privatization of of work um, is able to you know convert buildings from sort of. It, that serve his employees, that serve his thousands of employees. So he, you know, if there's someone who I think, rather than just, I think, caricaturing some, you know, hipster population, look at it. I mean, he's one person who very much emblemizes this kind of white savior in a way that he um, just completely obliterates the problem of poverty in Detroit and says, like, you know, if we can, if we, if we make this downtown business district great, people will people will come and whether that's true or not, I don't, I don't, I actually don't think it's true. It hasn't worked for 60 years, so I don't think it's going to work anytime soon, but it in a very blatant way comes, demonstrates how, you know, gentrification, at least in this kind of most recent wave of gentrification that is happening in Detroit is a sort of, you know, has some very bizarre and unsettling parallels to a kind of colonial project as you talked about. Like a, well, you didn't talk about, that's my, 
But but you mentioned how, you know, these people want to save the city and this kind of rhetoric of salvation. And it's that, you know, oh, well, if we just get, you know, if we just move to these neighborhoods, um, they'll be they'll be all right again um, or all white again. Um, And while that, you know, that. I mean, we're sitting in one of them. So the neighborhood that we're sitting in is now called is now referred to as Midtown um, and. This is often a point of contention because people say, well, really, this is the Cass Corridor, but which it was and had been called until, you know, the 80s. And then, you know, Wayne State University together with, you know, we're near the Detroit Medical Center. Um, and this whole, there are a whole bunch of arts and culture kind of. We're near the, the only Detroit Whole Foods. <laughs> yes, we are down. The, we are almost we could almost see the only Whole Foods that is um, the only Whole Foods in the city of Detroit. Um, which is taken as a just an awesome, awesome thing for the city. Um, it's also the world's smallest Whole Foods. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they kind of, they, they worked on this rebranding effort to rebrand the neighborhood as Midtown. Um, but even before that, it had been known by a whole bunch of other names and this kind of rebranding that happens. And That, I think, I mean, that's not unique to Detroit, but the kind of way that it operates in Detroit as something where, well, you know, if people have to move, that's okay, because there's all this space for them, and even though there's not, you know, there may be, you know, buildings, but they're not necessarily buildings that people want to or should be living in. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very oriented. Um, so at this point of the conversation, I'd like to do um, a sort of um, detour Uh, a sort of non-anthropological detours that will help us to introduce um, uh, more anthropological problems and, and uh, in particular the politics of water in Detroit that are, that are particularly, um, uh, I would say, violent uh, these days and uh, we'll, we'll explain why. But before, before doing so, I think there's something that we need to look at and uh, that actually makes a good bridge with the last uh, the last podcast uh, on Archipelago with Michelle Murphy and the notion of uh, chemical infrastructure. Um, we tend to think uh, in a very pure and abstract way of the way uh, something like a house is disappearing from its land and uh, And we, we picture the land as a field, uh, someone builds a house on it, and one day the house is empty and we destroy the house. And um, it's, uh, it's almost a, it's a biblical, uh, uh, we're made of dust and we're going back <laughs> to the dust, something like that. Uh, except this is actually not, this is not very accurate in the sense that uh, when you destroy a house, obviously... Uh, You do not leave back a field on it. This is not SimCity. Uh, uh, you actually have an entire um, an entire toxic condition that, that is being created by, uh, uh, on the one hand, the existence of the house itself, and on the other hand, uh, the house or any other building, uh, uh, um, the existence of the house itself and also the, the demolition of it as well. Um, so we can have this uh, again like this rhetoric of like let's do farms everywhere let's transform Detroit into a gigantic agricultural 
urban uh, urban activity. But at the end of the day, the the the, the soil is uh, is probably highly contaminated by uh, human presence for for uh, at least a century. Um, so could you could you maybe describe a little bit more those conditions in a uh, before we, we really jump into the politics of it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, and this is something that, you know, comes up at, in sort of meetings of the environmental under committee or something or other, because um, Detroit is presently in a, in a state where demolition is the solution to, to all problems, not just of, you know, the very material problems of having these, um, buildings in various states of decay that make for, you know, really great photos on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, um, but also that you know, these buildings become, arti- I mean, they become, on the one hand, sometimes they're used by sort of organized, you know, what are taken to be organized criminal activities, either through, you know, I'm on a very, very awkward ledge right here, um, the kind of criminalization of just organ any kind of organized activity among kids, um, which is taken to be you know either selling drugs or something like that, and neighbor you know and that is very much a real problem I guess with um, vacant buildings they're used they become sort of places where um, the what is what is glossed as like a seedy underbelly begins to operate so there's you know sort of what are taken to be social problems but then also very material problems in terms of these buildings are filled with lead and asbestos. Um, they have, you know, often very toxic mold growth that happen in them. Um, and any forms of, you know, building materials without a lot of care become, you know, they, they grow things and animals breed in them um, and animals excrete waste and this kind of... And so even in demolition, um, when... Detroit, I mean, this would have been about five years ago, was developing its sort of demolition procedure because this kind of the scale of, it's estimated there are between 80,000 and 100,000 vacant or abandoned buildings in Detroit. Now, many of them, those do have people actually living in them. Maybe not many, some of them do. Um, And this includes both residential and commercial and former industrial sites. Um, They would just demolished buildings and this would actually send huge clouds of asbestos into the into the sky and kind of and many of some of these buildings were actually near where people lived and this this you know offered a kind of enduring trace of the toxics but um as you point out you know i i actually am i am no expert in how many toxics there might be in this in this kind of in any one building but lead and asbestos are probably the biggest the biggest sort of things, kind of vibrant things and vibrant forms of matter that continue to exist in these buildings. Um, and so with remediate, you know, there are now remediation courses and I actually, I'm, you know, I'm learning how to remediate asbestos in buildings as part of my fieldwork. Um, and which involves, you know, there are different processes of wetting down things in order to prevent them from pluming. Um, but as you point out, you know, this stuff is still in the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, even on, you know, a resident, you know, industrial sites are filled with, you know, more gross and disgusting and toxic things than I, you know, than anyone can even count, including, you know, industrial waste that has just sat there. But this, this offers, I mean, 
there are barriers. I mean, and these things are not really recognized when people, you know, especially kind of this white hipster salvation caricature says, I'm going to go start a huge urban farm in Detroit. They don't, they don't necessarily realize what they're, you know, the quagmire, very chemical quagmires that they're stepping into. Um, And there are practices that people develop for actually avoiding the kind of forms of toxicity, either through, you know, they build, they don't use the actual soil, they build raised beds off of the soil, or they layer certain kinds of compost, or they grow certain kinds of plants there for, you know, in spaces for several years that actually remove toxins from the soil. Um, But it takes, I mean, it takes incredible work, actually, to Mm -hmm. to do those kinds of things. Well, and uh, that may be a sort of intellectual luxury to be able to um, uh, interpret the world before actually intervening in it, so to speak. But I mean, that that's probably what this podcast is about anyway. So uh, let's try to do it. Uh, uh, I, th- I think we tend to look at something like a city in terms too much of uh, surfaces. And I mean, we were talking about the, the, the state of roads, for example, but that's a, that's a surface issue, for example. Uh, and uh, and we don't consider them enough in terms of uh, if not volume at least uh, I mean vol- volume in, in and and here I can maybe also bridge towards a conversation I had with uh, Stuart Hilden about about thinking the volume in term in the geopolitics um, but the ground is very much uh, a volume mm-hmm. we 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 don't consider it as such because we don't actually have access to it but right. we. It's, uh, it's right there. And uh, similarly, in the non-visible uh, uh, realm, uh, something like the atmosphere is very much how we should consider as well the city uh, uh, in, in, its, uh, in the air that it's uh, manufacturing. Because uh, as we were talking with Michelle Murphy, I think non, none of the air we have around us could possibly be non uh not a, not a have, having being the subject of a of a human of a human intervention of any of any form, uh, uh, and uh, the first pages of her of her uh, sick building uh, her book uh, sick building uh, describe describes her, the course of the air that we're breathing in, uh, for example in this room and how it went through various filters of. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, AC and all this kind of thing. It's 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 it, those descriptions are, are very valuable, but all that to say that um, similarly we think too much of bodies as being surfaces and being closed surfaces, but actually we are very much uh, uh, within those atmosphere and we need them to breathe. We need them to we need them to live quite simply, and so the toxicity the toxicity of asbestos, for example, and and the, the sort of dust that that are that are that is um, uh, pulverized uh, when when a building is being destroyed is very much um, intervening with this this realm of the atmosphere. So it has it has direct effect on bodies. Um, so that may be a very convoluted way to actually just say that asbestos is uh, uh, lethal, <laughs> but but. It's, I, 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 I'm still convinced that it's useful in the fact that in the way we think of the city and as an architect in the way we build the city, we, we very much have to think of this dimension uh, that we don't necessarily look at all the time. 
Um, I don't know. Maybe do you want? I to mean, I just I wanted to mean pivot back to something you said at sure. the very beginning, right there, which is you know, we as you know, kind of academicy people um, have a a bit of privilege in thinking about you know these you know multiple layers and sedimentation and how you know this is history carried through to the present and that. I mean, and I, I don't think we should lose that, and I, but I also don't think that we should discount or think that this is uniquely a kind of academic practice. Mm-hmm. Like, this is something that, especially people who have lived in a place for a very long time, you know, they know that a house or that a, a site was once a dump or was once a factory or was once something else. And they have, I mean, at least the people who I know and who I've come in contact with, you know, they have quite, you know, savvy ways of finding... Um, of finding sites that are either, you know, less toxic. I mean, there's nothing that's not toxic, but of finding places that are less toxic and making them even less toxic. Um, And so I I guess I don't want to discount that. I don't want to say that it's uniquely an academic thing, but it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of expertise. Um, And whether that's something, I mean, so that's something that I guess I have found while being here in Detroit is that there are, you know, people who know, their history, I mean, who are able to connect in some way to their the history of a particular place of a particular landscape, are able to you know sort of interact with it on a on a kind of way that can can refashion and reconfigure it. Um, and then also, I think I gave the kind of impression that all of Detroit's toxicity comes from the past and is kind of this enduring legacy. But there are you know, Detroit continues to have, in, you know, sorts of very heavy industrial production. There is a giant oil refinery. Um, which has been the subject of so many of numerous sort of environmental justice complaints um, in terms of the pollution that it continues to emit on neighborhoods, you know, both. And it's situated, it's in Detroit, but it's situated along the kind of suburban boundaries. So kind of perforating this sort of imagined divide between city and suburb and through environmental justice actions. But then also, you might not smell it now, but there is a waste incinerator that operates in Detroit not too far from where we are um, that burns trash and sometimes it just smells even in a you know what is one of Detroit's most gentrified neighborhoods just smells like burning trash Um, and so these kinds of forms of toxicity continue to layer on top of each other Um, and they're not just kind of enduring legacies of the past but they they're very much still made in the present Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think we should insist as well on the fact that uh, toxicity considered as such is only doesn't mean anything. Toxicity right. is always uh, in relation to something. Yes. So when we talk about toxicity, it's usually in relation to, uh, if not all living beings, at least uh, human human yes. beings. Uh, and and similarly, toxicity has no. Uh, uh, essential politics attributed to it. It's it's not it's not toxicity is not. Oh, there's no moral to it. There's no toxicity right. is not evil. Uh, however, the knowledge of toxicity and the product the production of toxicity within this knowledge is very much political. Yes. Uh, and and so uh, that's something uh, that's something we can see with her something like the trash incinerator mm-hmm. for example but we can also see it and uh, eventually we're finally we're jumping right in it uh, we can see it through the politics of water as precisely well. and uh, so uh, maybe to describe what's going on in Detroit right now and you'll, you'll do it in a much more precise way than I will but um, 
because of this uh, financial uh, uh, piloting of the city, uh, there's been some uh, uh, absolutely uh, humongous uh, cuts of uh, a municipal water supply, uh, which makes, we were talking about that before as a conversation, we don't know exactly, but let, something around 30% of the entire city population that do not get supplied in water in their homes anymore. Uh, so um, uh, something uh, quite unprecedented probably in their in the United States. Um, uh, but there is even more to it, again, going back to the toxicity of it, as that you will, you will describe for us, won't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, so part of understanding, you know, the very particular politics of this, you know, water delivery system in Detroit is a bit of its kind of, it's not entirely unique in terms of the United States or the world, but um, in Detroit, the water system serves um, the most the large part of the greater metropolitan region, which is around 4 million people, but is owned wholly by the city of Detroit um, and operated by the city of Detroit, who then provision, you know, so will have a meter running between, you know, for each individual municipality, which then bills its own consumers and then, you know, at a rate that is set by that municipality based on the amount that the city of Detroit charges them. Um, and this has been a pretty contentious setup for, you know, decades, given that, um, at, especially as, you know, Detroit's city, govern, you know, city government has become increasingly, you know, black um, and suburbs have become have remained fairly white and wealthier. Um, this had it's had racial overtones for for decades. Um, and the city had been until very this it's called Detroit Water and Sewerage Department because they also manage the waste um, wastewater. But this department, which is has a large amount of autonomy from the city government, it's actually managed quite separately, had been under. A sort of legal oversight due to pollution, you know, large uh, large amounts of pollution that happened in the um, la- latter part of the 20th century. So it is a, you know, even as the city of Detroit's population declined, um, this water system continued to grow because it, ser- it services many people outside of the city limits. Um, and with the financial piloting of the city, I mean, but it is also a huge resource. Um, fin- I mean, Legally, the, the water department cannot make a profit um, for the city of Detroit. Um, that is not legally allowed, but it's something that's commonly talked about, at least by suburban folks, as, oh, they're making so much money off of my water. They're charging me so much for water. Um, and while the city of Detroit, you know, people who are, you know, receive water through the system do pay more than many cities, you know, many other places in the United States, especially in the Great Lakes region, which has 20% of the world's fresh water, um, they pay, you know, in the system, they pay a lot less than, city, you know, major cities like New York and Chicago. Um, so, I mean, it's a bit of a, I mean, it's a unique arrangement that has really frames this kind of politics through the kind of the, on the histories of suburban flight and kind of fear of the city. Um, and with so with the bankruptcy filing, the emergency manager proposed privatizing this water system. And while, you know, and this not, so this not only earned the ire of, you know, people in the city of Detroit, this 
suburban customers, I mean, and they think of themselves as customers of this water system, were actually being, frankly, horrified. Um, even so, Oakland County, which is just north of the city of Detroit, um, remains one of the wealthiest counties in in the United States, um, and tends to be fairly conservative, and has been has a county executive. His name is L. Brooks Patterson, who has been quite militantly anti-Detroit for decades, um, said, you know, this is untenable. You cannot privatize our water. This is impossible. Um, And so the kind of the other, the kind of backup plan that the emergency manager's office had was to spin the water department off into a and an entity that could be leased that the metropolitan region would lease from the city of Detroit for something like 40 years. And that would allow the city's um, spreadsheets to, you know, make up some money, but also continue to provide a non, at least in name, not privatized service. And this has not, um, the kind of county or the metropolitan region has not really reacted favorably to this because it would still increase their rates. Um, So, these kind of procedures of shutoffs, which have occurred in recent weeks, where you know people who only residential customers who have more than one hundred and fifty dollars outstanding on their bill, which is actually not a lot in terms of a water bill, um, have received shutoff notices, and then someone will come and shut off their water um, until the entire bill is paid. And this has, you know, I mean, it's frankly galling um, that they're shutting off. I mean, regardless of what. The poly, you know, the, whose water might be being shut off. There are commercial customers, including big concert venues um, in the kind of downtown district, business district who owe hundreds of thousands of dollars on their water bills and no shutoffs have been pursued for them. Um, I think on Monday, these shutoffs were halted um, because the bankruptcy judge said, this is giving me, this, the United Nations cited... Um, the city, you know, issued a declaration to the city of Detroit saying that you're violating the human right to water. Um, it's been, you know, taken as a very much a war on the po- on people who are impoverished, who's maybe in rental housing, and you know, it's not their responsibility to maintain, you know, leaky pipes, and they're but yet they're being billed thousands of dollars, and that, frankly, they shouldn't be. Exp- you know, there's no way you could expect someone to pay that. Um, so perhaps pivoting back to the kind of ground we were talking about earlier, you know, it becomes, it adds, I guess, yet another fate in yet another, you know, black, you know, because for the most part, at least in media coverage, the people whose water has been shut off have been black, a kind of another black faced poverty in the city of Detroit. Um, and there has been a lot of activism recently, at least around these shutoffs is saying that, you know, you're, you're kicking you're kicking people out of their homes because this can result in legal action that legally unless someone has act it's access to water so if you're getting water from your neighbor's tap that can be considered access but children can be removed from their parents they can be taken out of their homes so this very much well it's done under this guise of oh well if people don't pay their bills you know we can't provide this service for you um it has very much a disproportionate effect on people who are poor, even though there are, you know, wealthy companies who owe much more than $150 on their bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe to 
conclude this conversation, could you, and staying with yeah. the, the topic of water, could you describe what you were describing to me in the preparation of this um, of this conversation about how um, uh, again the wa the water is not just a, uh, an abstract thing and uh, has very much a, a chemical composition to it, and mm -hmm. how. Uh, that as well has been compromised uh, yes. in, uh, within those politics. Sure. I mean, so my kind of nascent dissertation research, um, through that I've been looking at the city of Highland Park, which is an island. I mean, it is a separate municipality that exists in the center of the city of Detroit. If you look at a municipal map, there are these sort of Island. cutouts. Um, and there are two of them. One of them is the city of Highland Park, and the other one is the city of Hamtramck. And this, the actually part of the reason that Highland Park, that there is this separate municipality of Highland Park, even exists is because of water. Um, so Henry Ford's second production facility for his Model T um, was in Highland Park, and which, when he opened it, you know, at the very in the first decade of the 20th century, Highland Park was a village, very much, very, you know, at least it's described as a very, very rural place that was several miles from the northernmost boundary of the city of Detroit. Um, and it was, you know, between, you know, 1913 and 1925 that the city of Detroit began to annex and accumulate land around it um, up until, you know, where its northern boundary is um, today. And Henry Ford, in, you know, part of this was, you know, we want places for future expansion, but another part was, you know, we would like to, the tax revenue of these, I mean, there were many large industrial facilities that were in these parts of these pieces of territory, and this was a way of, of gaining access to those tax dollars. And Henry Ford, in a kind of bit of shrewd industrial brilliance, um, convinced the village of Highland Park to incorporate as a separate municipality. And he, and part of how he did this was, you know, he, um, is he said, I'll provision you with water um, at a lower rate than the city of Detroit would be able to give it to you for because I have this water pumping infiltration system that serves my factory. And it draws water from Lake St. Clair about seven miles away from the factory through a pipeline that was kind of followed the city of Detroit boundary. And Highland Park chose to incorporate, and up until 2011, it had, you know, its own separate water purveyance system that was unique and separate from the city of Detroit. And it was in 2000, or pardon me, 2012. And in late 2012, it was this facility, which hadn't been upgraded for decades um, due to a lack of financial ability by the city of Highland Park, which has lost, I mean, it peaked around 40,000 residents um, and now has fewer than 10,000 people living in it. Um, this facility that was supposed to be treating water was shut down after numerous violations of environmental quality, um, either as test, I mean, separately, either tested by the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality or the United States Federal or the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and part of, and this resulted from massive amounts of algae that just clogged pumps and valves and corroded all sorts of the inner workings of this of this infrastructural apparatus, and as part of that, there were these um, after you know in tests that were conducted after the the facility was shut down, um, they found 
micro the what's called microcystis algae, um, which are kind of they're a a toxic form of algae that grows in I mean that is nat- it's not native to the Great Lakes region, but has but first emerged in the 1970s um, around industrial outflows into the into the kind of the Detroit River and the surrounding aquatic ecosystem, um, which were warm enough to promote the growth of these algae, and then had been widely thought to be you know pretty much eradicated and taken care of until recently when rising water temperatures um, resulted in these huge bloom algae blooms that covered much of at least the you know the lower part of the Great Lakes region, especially the Detroit River and Lake Erie, and these algae, which can cause all forms of health problems in, for human beings to think of toxicity as something that's in relation and are governed as a, um, you know, are regulated as a, you know, a toxic substance, um, were found in this, in the treatment basins of the Highland Park water system. Um, and be, since they were found after the system was shut down, they're not legally part of, they are not actionable through any kind of legal recourse, but they're something that, you know, there is a very much a fear, at least among the people that I talk to, that they've been exposed to and that this stuff could still be in their pipes and they continue to boil their water years after, you know, they're kind of, they're now provisioned by the city of Detroit water system. Um, But water in that sense is not an abstract thing. It's something that around which municipal boundaries have been set. It's something around which, you know, even though it comes out of a tap, it, you know, it exists and it has a history and a narrative. Um, and that narrative is, is very much political. Well, Nick, thank you so much for thank taking so the much. time to uh, describe for people like me who've been uh, 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 obviously uh, uh, reading things about Detroit, but somehow uh, that tended to be a little bit too simplistly uh, explained so that here I think we have a, a very good expose of the complexity of the politics that are behind uh, uh, the current situation of the city and uh, historically informed uh, um, which will be great for me to uh, continue visiting the city with, with that in mind uh, thank you very much thank you so much, it's been my pleasure